What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today on the podcast, we have William H. Janeway, better known as Bill Janeway. You'll hear his whole curriculum vitae in a minute, so I won't go into the details on that. Uh, for those of you who are interested in technology, venture capital, the history of financing, you are about to sit through a master class in angel investing, VC technology, how the world has developed to fund speculative innovation, the proper role of government, of the private sector, of the public markets. This is really a fascinating conversation, a tour de force. I'm not exaggerating when I said we have another eight pages of question. I could have kept going for another hour and a half, but I promised to get him out of here 15 minutes ago, and we still ran late. Um, he is tremendously insightful with an enormous breadth of experience and thoughtfulness about what it means to be a successful early stage investor in technology and other fields. I think you're going to find this to be an absolutely brilliant, insightful, delightful conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bill Janeway. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is William Janeway, better known as Bill. I think he is the most important person our listeners may never have heard of before. Uh, and that's only because... Some of the things we're going to talk about are a little inside baseball, but let me give you a quick walkthrough of his curriculum vitae. He is currently a managing director and senior advisor at Warburg Pincus, where he helped to develop their technology investment division. Princeton undergrad, got his PhD in economics at Cambridge, uh, ultimately became the co-founder of the Institute for New Economic Thinking uh, that he co-founded with George Soros. In 2012, he published a fascinating book called Doing in a Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, and we're going to talk a little more about that during our conversation. He also helped to fund and create BEA Systems. Is that That's an accurate way to describe that? That's correct. And, and we'll spend some time explaining how he a cash investment of a little more than $50 million became a $6.5 billion payout a few years later. There's so much more stuff to go over. We'll we'll, we'll get into it as we go. Uh, William Janeway, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here, Barry. So I, I said, uh, as in the introduction, that many of the lay people listeners may not know who you are, but let me uh, give a quote uh, from your book by Mark Andreessen, uh, currently a VC at Andreessen Horowitz, and essentially the person who invented uh, Netscape and, and really created the modern browser and the modern form of, of the internet. Andreessen said, 
Bill Janeway is a key creator of modern venture capital, and he tells an amazing story of the intersection of economics and innovation. This book is essential to anyone who wants to understand technology and how its creation will be financed for decades to come. That, that's quite the endorsement, isn't it? It's a great endorsement. I have a great regard for Mark, and he is one of those rare people who's transitioned from building a business operationally, which of course he did at Netscape and then Opsware, to being a successful investor. It's a hard frontier to cross. So let me ask you a, a simple question, and I'm curious. When people ask, what do you do, how do you respond to that? Well, it depends on which morning I wake up. Uh-huh. Some mornings I wake up and it's 100% Warburg Pincus. It's working with my younger colleagues, defining uh, investment opportunity or thinking strategically about where there's a, a hole in the market for innovative technology. Sometimes I wake up and it's a Cambridge University day. I'm deeply embedded in the economics department at Cambridge, which is playing a key role in creatively responding to the global financial crisis of 2008, which woke up a lot of minds, a lot of economists who'd been living in a kind of fantasy world of perfect expectations and efficient markets. So that's another part of my life. And that, of course, is where the Institute for New Economic Thinking comes in. And, um, and sometimes I'm very much involved with the Social Science Research Council, a not-for-profit a, a, a based here in New York, uh, run by a great social scientist named Ira Katz-Nelson, and where we're creating an environment where economists can feel comfortable interacting with other social scientists rather than playing at being sort of physicists because they've got the math. And so these different lives intersect and they keep the neurons talking to each other nonstop. You know, I've long said that economists have suffered from physics envy. You know, yeah. physics and astrophysics, they can land a, a, a rover on a comet a billion miles away. Economists don't quite have that practical application of their models, something you've been critical of and said economics needs to move from a theoretical practice to something more practical. Well, here, here's the problem. Economics is just so much harder than physics because, <laughs> look, the, the, the molecules, the molecules don't have consciousness. Right. They're not aware of what they don't know. Mm -hmm. But every human being, except for maybe an extremist who might be running for president, wakes <laughs> up in the morning knowing that not only does she not know what the consequences of her actions are going to be, but nobody else does either. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that is the lesson I deeply learned when I was a graduate student at Cambridge studying under the students of the great John Maynard Keynes. The central thesis of Keynes's economics was making decisions that you have to make about committing money, whether it's to household goods or investment in new stuff, where you know that you can't know what the return's gonna be. So the people do the best they can and all too often the result is a mess. That's why 2008, to me, for economics and for everybody dependent on economists, 2008 was the gift that keeps on giving. A wake up call to say the least. It taught us humility about what the great Hayek, Keynes's rival and friend, called the pretense of knowledge. Mm -hmm. We pretend we know in our models more than we can. and. 
bringing back into the reality of decision-making under uncertainty and how that scales up into failures of coordination. That's what new economics is about, and that's why I'm so thrilled, 40 years after I left Cambridge, to be back involved in economics, having spent that time making decisions under uncertainty about information technology venture capital. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is William Janeway. He is a venture capitalist and author of the book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. I want to pull a quote out of the book and discuss something you had written some time ago. The innovation economy emphasizes the strategic role played by the state and by financial speculators, sources of investment unconcerned with economic value. Explain that a bit. So when you're operating at the frontier, you're making investments in new stuff. Maybe it's building railway networks. Maybe it's putting fiber optic cable in the ground. Or maybe it's trying to find out what this new stuff is good for. The one thing that you share with other investors at the frontier is you don't know what the return's going to be. You can't. You can. You can run a spreadsheet. Anybody can run a spreadsheet. But those are those are really assumed numbers, and That's, you know when you start out with that basis, who so, knows where it goes. So if investment at the frontier is limited only to where you have a really high degree of confidence that you're going to make a profit, you're not going to have very much investment. So there are two forces that historically, this is his, this is history. This isn't theory. Historically, two forces have collaborated, have intersected. Mm -hmm. One is governments driven by political missions, legitimate missions that transcend cost-benefit analysis, economic calculation. Manifest destiny is what we called it in the 19th century when we took 9% of the land mass of the lower 48 states and gave it to a bunch of railroad promoters mm -hmm. who crisscrossed the country with railroad lines on the basis of which came Railway Express and Sears, uh, Sears Roebuck and, and uh, Montgomery created the, the, the mail order retail economy, mm -hmm. created the national market. The state moved the technology, building that network out to the point where speculators could fund the exploration of what to do with it. They mobilized capital on a scale that those rational, careful, green eye shade investors would never have done. We saw exactly the same thing in the 1990s when we built out the internet and we had you know, 200 dot-coms that went bust, but we were left with Amazon and Google and eBay. Amazon took 2.2 billion of cash investment mm -hmm. to get to positive cash flow and transform the retail economy of the world. You can only do that with speculative money that is investing to get out in time before the bubble bursts. We can talk about bubbles. So let's talk about bubble right now. You mentioned railroads. Right. They eventually became a giant boom and then collapsed just a handful of survivors. In fact, every major technological innovation it seems there's a huge boom. It reaches a point of speculative excess, becomes a bubble, and then collapses. Whether it's cars, there were 100 car manufacturers at one point. What are there now? Uh, three or four in the United States and a couple of dozen worldwide. 
computers, radio and television, and of course, the internet. Is this the nature of technology, that boom-bust cycle? Well, first, the first thing, the first law of bubbles is wherever you have markets in tradable assets, mm -hmm. from tulip bulbs to beach houses in the Nevada desert, <laughs> wherever you have markets, in, you're going to have herding behavior, you're going to have momentum investing, you're going to have people who, just like today with the unicorns, are motivated by FOMO, fear of missing out. And by the way, when you have professionals managing other people's money, mm -hmm. if they don't follow the bubble, they get fired. The money gets taken away so, and somebody else does. So bubbles are banal. They are endogenous. They are ubiquitous. Everywhere you look in the history of finance, you find bubbles. But not all bubbles are the same. So before we go into how bubbles differ, I have to ask you a question. I'm going to assume that you believe Hyman Minsky was correct. Well, you know, Hyman Minsky was a mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. During the 35 years when I was totally immersed in venture capital investing, on the side, I kind of kept my mind open, listening and looking for people who, for thinkers who, who, who wrote and analyzed the world I was actually living in. And I met Hyminski in about 1982. We bonded. He was out at Washington University. I read his books. I wrote some essays for him. When he moved east and was at Bard College at the Levy Institute, I used to come up for his conferences. He had a tremendous influence on me. And, of course, in 2008, the world rediscovered the most neglected economist of the second half of the 20th century. I, I discovered him through Paul McCulley, who's been a guest on the show, and I know for many years from his days at PIMCO. Briefly explain Minsky's primary economic thesis about stability leading to instability. Minsky's thesis, the, the evolution of the, uh, of, of the movement from the conservative, prudent uh, system to one of crazy wild speculation that self-destructs goes like this. And, and, and let's remember, Minsky was really applying this to the banking system, mm -hmm. not to the stock market, right. but there's an analogy. So I lend you money, Barry. I lend you money, and you not only pay me back the interest on a timely fashion, but when you owe me back the loan, you pay me back the loan out of your own income, mm -hmm. out of money you've earned. So guess what? You want another loan? You got it. And this time, you know, I don't really care. I trust you. You keep paying me that interest on a timely basis. And if at the end of the day, we got to roll over the loan, we got to refinance it. Well, we've just moved from what, from what Minsky called the first, the hedged environment, uh -huh. where you're paying the loan back out of cash flow, out of earnings, to the speculative environment, because there's a risk. There's a risk that the market may not be so acceptable when it's time, but it's still, it's still pretty solid and it's business as usual. But then, and this is what happened in 2007, then people have been making so much money making these loans, they feel really comfortable lending you the third loan. And this time, you know, you wake up one morning and things are a little tight and you call me up and say, you know, I know I owe you this interest payment, but it would really help me if instead of paying you cash, I pay you in kind. I give you a little more of that debt. This is called PIC loans, payment in kind. In other so, words, you recapitalize the interest and the previous 
principal and you're rolling the whole loan over again. And the signal that you're in a banking bubble, which mm -hmm. is going to blow, is when the lenders start lending the borrowers the interest to pretend the loan is still good. That's exactly what happened in 2007. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is William Janeway. He is a venture capitalist, author, and managing director at Warburg Pincus. And we are discussing how you helped to create BEA Systems, which is a technology company that really integrates databases with the internet. Is that a gross oversimplification? BEA was created in the mid-90s and became the company that delivered the platform for running important commercial applications, applications that involve people spending and collecting money mm -hmm. across the internet with millions of simultaneous users. Companies now owned by Oracle. It's the core of Oracle's platform technology today, which is called Oracle Fusion. But BEA, beginning in the mid-90s through the mid-aughties, was a pioneer in transforming the world of transactional computing, of commercial computing, from being dominated by IBM, mm -hmm. everything on an IBM mainframe, to being distributed out across millions of separate machines uh, interlinked by the internet. So this, this allowed the transition from mainframe to server. Exactly. And, and so uh, that's such a weird name, BEA Systems. What does BEA stand for? Well, in 1994, um, at Warburg-Pincus, we, we had created an investment thesis that it was time. The technology had evolved to the point where IBM's dominant control of the marketplace, where it could charge enormous premium prices, that that was, was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that around the commercial world of enterprises, you were seeing client servers, sun systems running, Oracle databases was opening up. So we began a, a program that, that went on for a decade of investing in the way I like to put it, and frankly, in kind of helping IBM become just another competitor. <laughs> okay. So in the middle of that process, um, I was introduced to a fellow called Bill Coleman. Mm -hmm. Bill had run um, the core software at Sun Microsystems. He'd actually been working for Eric Schmidt. And, oh, really? And, um, and now he, chairman at Google. Right. And and Bill had a, a great idea. Sun's, Sun's mantra was, the network is the computer. Right. So Bill said, if the, if the network's the computer, the network needs an operating system, like a computer does, that, that allocates and manages all the different resources. And he connected with a brilliant young engineer named Alfred Schwang and a seasoned commercial sales and marketing guy named Ed Scott. So Bill and Ed and Alfred had this idea that, that they could, with enough capital and enough time, build software that would effectively replace IBM's core transaction platform. Mm -hmm. So we began having conversations in the autumn of 94. And, um, you know, I said, you know, guys, I, I, I get it. I get the vision. We've been thinking about this ourselves for five years. You guys are incredibly talented. But before we set down to, to build something that's going to take three, four years, going to cost a ton of money, why don't we see if we can cheat? Why don't we see whether there's stuff out there that could play this role but is owned by people who don't know what to do with it? So we actually launched BEA. 
with Bill, Ed, and Alfred. Bill, Ed, and Alfred. That was the okay. working title. It's like, you know, working title for a play. Bill, right. Ed, and Alfred, B-E-A. We did it as, as a research project. First, to evaluate all the existing technologies that were available, and then to validate that there were real markets, real markets with real customers that could buy into alternatives to IBM. And we found this technology that had been developed in, guess where? Bell Labs, AT&T. Right. And Bell Labs, AT&T, in those days, when it was a dominant communications company, uh-huh. basically had to give everything away that it wasn't using in communications. To, because of the monopoly rules and... Exactly. And that Justice ultimately Department. became Lucent. Uh, well, that, was, that the, became Lucent. But before then, AT&T sold its Unix Systems Labs. This is uh-huh. where the Unix operating system was. And this is where this core technology called Tuxedo was. Mm-hmm. They sold it to a little company called Novell. Oh, sure. Novell Netware. Netware. Yep, I remember Competing with Microsoft, run by a guy called Ray Norda, who was dedicated to fighting Bill Gates to the death. Mm -hmm. So he bought this technology, which was super complex, big, heavy-duty stuff. You needed engineers surrounding it into a company that that sold everything in a red box at a Computerland store. I used to say, you know— not going to work. Well, unless they can micro-miniaturize three systems engineers and put it in every red box <laughs> so that they can come out and dance and make it work. So in any case, Ed Scott had a long conversation with the new CEO, Bob Frankenberg. Bob mm-hmm. Frankenberg had come from HP. He knew enterprise computing, and he knew that Novell and Tuxedo didn't mix. So we put together a deal which launched BEA, by acquiring the tuxedo technology and having it in the hands of people, Bill and Ed and Alfred, who knew what to do with it. So that was a $55 million no, initial? No, it was. It, we, we, we had already bought a couple of consulting businesses. By this time, we had, we had committed because we knew we were going to be buying stuff from scratch. Mm-hmm. This was the innovation. We created what we called a line of equity, not a line of credit, a line of equity. So we priced out $50 million up front. Mm-hmm. And so when the guys went into Novell needing to do a deal, they didn't have to say, hey, Bob, don't do a thing. We'll be back in six months when we raise another round of venture capital. We were there with them. We could do the deal in real time. That meant that in a year, BEA was running at $100 million revenue base. Wow. Could go public. Just in 1996-7, as the internet bubble started to take off, Mm -hmm. but Tuxedo wasn't designed for the internet. And this was the genius of Bill and Ed and Alfred. And Bill and Alfred, the technology guys, really came together. They did a search for technology that was was internet native. Mm -hmm. And they found a little startup called WebLogic. I remember that name. So WebLogic was already a hot company, even though... It was just beginning to ship stuff, just beginning. And the valuation happened before, it'll happen again. This is what a bubble starts to smell like. Right. The valuation for the startup started rising and rising. But so did the stock of BEA. Because we've been able to go public. What year did BEA go public? 1996. And, and what sort of valuation did it go public at? Uh, well, initially it was at about a two hundred million dollar valuation, and that's so that's a pretty good return on fifty five million. And we didn't even have all the fifty five million in yet, right? But by nineteen ninety eight, that valuation was up to a billion, which was a very good thing. 
Right. Because to buy WebLogic, it took 150 million of shares of stock. Right. And if we hadn't had the public market valuation, couldn't have done it. Couldn't have done it. So how long after that did it take to get to six and a half billion dollars? Well, first it took it took about a year after that to get to a billion dollars in revenues. Mm -hmm. A billion in revenue. That's a real company. That's a real company. Very profitable, becoming the standard. And with the bubble. With the bubble in the stock market and money the just being thrown around everywhere, valuation went to twenty-five billion. So who ends up taking BEA out when everything is said well, and done? Well, first of all, the public speculative stock market took it so up to we a few billion. Warburg Pincus owned uh, after the IPO. Warburg Pincus still owned more than fifty percent of the company. Really? And well, we were the sole funders, mm -hmm. sole funders through this line of equity. So we began distributing our shares to our limited partners. Uh -huh. The shares were fully tradable, completely liquid, and the stock kept rising as we were distributing the shares. And so that's where that six and a half billion of realized value came from, distributing shares into a rising market. And, you know, we talked about Hymensky. Mm -hmm. I, I, my, my senior partner, John Vogelstein, who was the chief investment officer at Warburg Pincus, was a great student of markets. And I... Back, way back at Cambridge, had written my PhD thesis on 1929 mm -hmm. to 1931 in, in Britain. So I'd seen, if you like, I'd seen the movie before. Right. I'd seen the stock market bubble of 1929 when RCA, if you took the stock price chart of RCA from 26 to 29, it looked like BEA from 96 to 99. And so that's all you needed to see. We knew it was a bubble. We knew it wasn't going to last. We knew we'd built a real company, but it was time to realize the value that we'd created. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Bill Janeway. He is a managing director at Warburg Pincus, an author of the book Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, as well as a venture capital investor. Let, let's dive right into the VC process. We were speaking earlier about BEA Systems What's the decision process like when you're doing more traditional sort of venture investing where someone brings you a company and you're interested in it? There may be other investors, other VCs or angels participating. What's that process like? Well, I think we want to frame this in thinking about venture capital as an industry. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, this is not a very old industry. About 1980, when it went from being a craft practice by people, we could get them all in this room. I promise you, the well, founding Shockley members, and you want to well, go back Shockley to the early days of But uh, American Research and Development, Greylock, Venrock, J.H. Whitney, um, Warburg Pincus was a founder of the National Venture Capital Association. There were barely 25 firms mm -hmm. in the country that were founders of the NVCA, but. One of the, the, the venture capital has been studied intensely mm -hmm. through empirical analysis. And there are a few stylized facts mm -hmm. that emerge over these 35 years since 1980. The first is there is tremendous skew in the returns of venture capitalists, meaning a small number of venture capital funds have fantastic performance. A large number have very mediocre performance. We see something very similar amongst hedge funds and not quite as skewed, but still there is a, a 
a shifted distribution right. amongst private equity as well. Now, second, and this has been confirmed right through 2010, unlike most public market investors, there is persistence in the return. So it's not just a few funds, it's a few firms. Mm -hmm. So performance of firm one helps predict performance of firm two, of fund two, fund three, and that's why you have these iconic names. Lina Perkins and... Well, uh, um, uh, Benchmark and Sequoia. Mm -hmm. These firms have been successful over decades. Mm -hmm. um, so third, however, for the industry as a whole, for the median firm, the returns are very co closely correlated with the public market. Because that's their egress? That's well, how they get out of and their that's, investment? And that's where we're going to come to a very interesting change in the last 15 years. Uh, it used to be that we could take, in the 80s and 90s, we could kind of take access to the IPO market for granted. Mm -hmm. Each year, and this is, frankly, this is my own research when I went back to Cambridge and became a financial economist again after 35 years as a venture capitalist, the correlation is really tight with the state of the IPO market. In a hot IPO market, venture capitalists look like geniuses. Sure. When the market cools down... And the exit opportunities shrink... Then the returns, and since 2000, venture capital returns have been just, for the, for the average, mm -hmm. have been just about what you'd get from investing in the NASDAQ index, mm -hmm. where you'd also have complete liquidity. Right. So this is a stress. This is a strain, and, and a lot of people are concerned about this. Do we, have, do we have too many VCs? Is there too much money sloshing around? Well, there certainly is a lot of money sloshing around, but you then have to think about the technology, the environment for innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's changed, too. So back in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to build a new IT company, talk about biotechnology separately. Sure. If you want to talk about a, a new IT company, to get to the first dollar of revenue, you had to be thinking 10 to $20 million of complete risk capital. You had, a, you had to build a company from scratch. You had to have your own hardware, your own software, Actually, develop your own servers. You had to buy today, machines, and your own, buy licenses. Today, you could pretty much do that with off-the-shelf stuff. Well, with open source, with mm -hmm. free stuff and renting by the by the Amazon cycle. Cloud or exactly. what have you. And I was talking to an old friend of mine, an old-timer who goes back then and is doing a new startup, and he's building some software for um, investment banks, how to pull together all the data they need for all sure. those spreadsheets. And I said, so Chris, when you get this to where you can actually start shipping it to a customer, how much will it have cost you? He thought for a moment, he said, you know, 60, 70,000 bucks. That's unbelievable. It would have been 10 to 15 million so, 15 so years ago. When Lots of startups. When I was about to say, when people are a little negative on the future of the country, the future of the economy, when I go to certain conferences and, and I go to this thing on the West Coast in San Diego, of all places, that are these young entrepreneurs right out of college, my mind is blown at how innovative and forward-looking a lot of these new technologies are. What we're playing off is the maturation of the digital internet infrastructure spilling over into the open source software, the cloud computing. It is a golden age for innovating and developing new digital services. Obviously, we all talk about Uber and Airbnb, but there mm -hmm. are 20 more a week. Now, it, let me let me interrupt yeah. you there. 
if you have a longer perspective, if, if for the people who are waiting for the U.S. economy to collapse, isn't this the antidote to that? Aren't we going to see a boom in new services, new technology, new apps? Hasn't the whole app economy just completely changed the game based on what you're talking about? It's ten or $20,000 or free to, to change the world. Well, it, and it has all sorts of impact. You know, it changes what kinds of jobs are available. Mm-hmm. It changes what time in terms of employment. A lot of people think that in this world, you can't rely on your employer for health care. We really need to expend even more the, mm-hmm. the social safety net so people can afford to play in the gig economy, right. whether as an Uber driver or whether uh, making deliveries or whether writing software for a startup, writing code for open source. So it has a lot of social impact. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. You're dead right. Innovation isn't over. It's on a roll. And it's really just ramping up. You're building on decades of innovation that have made so much things, so much stuff cheaper and more available. And in fact, again, taking a long historical look back, it took you know 50 years from the invention of the microprocessor to get where we are today. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to that railroad age, it took 50 years from the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad to get to Sears Roebuck. Going back to the age of electricity, it took 50 years from t- Edison turning on the Pearl River, the, the Pearl Street power plant in New York, the first mm-hmm. generating station, to where you could have a, a, a mix master and a refrigerator in every middle class home in America. And oh, by the way, you could have manufacturing factories where you could just move the machines around and reconfigure the process and create tremendous increase in productivity. What What's the significance of that 50-year time span? It takes a long time to first make the new stuff reliable uh-huh. and ubiquitous. How much of that is it takes a generation to grow up just assuming, hey, electricity. Yeah, I could do stuff with that. I, I, there's a lot to there's a lot to that, Barry. There's a lot to that. Um, there, there's another aspect of it too, however, and that is that it takes time to explore wastefully mm-hmm. what this stuff is good for. You remember we started out talking about decisions under uncertainty, why we need a mission-driven government to 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 subsidize the railroads and initially create the internet and why we need speculators, is because we don't know what's going to work and what isn't. we got to try and try. I, I like to say the innovation economy proceeds by trial and error and error and error and error. It's learning by doing. There's no roadmap that is given from on high that tells us how to get there at the frontier. It's a lot easier for somebody who's playing catch-up, mm-hmm. but we're what? not playing catch-up. My friend Dan Gross wrote a book called Pop, Why Bubbles Are Good for the Economy. I know the book well. And, and his thesis is railroads, radio, television, computers, fiber. He said if it wasn't for Global Crossing and Metromedia Fiber that laid thousands and thousands of miles at hundreds of dollars per mile, and then ultimately it's pennies per mile out of bankruptcy, yeah. you don't end up with YouTube and Google and Facebook and all these other things exactly built on right. top of that. Exactly right. Exactly. So so in the last minute we have, you you mentioned, and we'll, we'll get a little more into this in the next segment, in the last minute we have, what is the proper role of government in fostering this sort of speculative innovation? Well, government 
isn't good at picking winners, but it's good at enabling competitive entrepreneurs to become winners, funding science, and also, and this we can come back to, it's not just providing research funding, it's being a customer, an early supportive customer for stuff that is not yet ready for commercial prime time. If people want to find information about your writings or, or what you're doing, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy is available at bookstores and at Amazon. Where else can they find your writings? An Amazon outlet near you, and <laughs> they can also find me. I've written for Forbes. I write uh, for Project Syndicate, and uh, I'm pretty visible on the on uh, Google. And thanks, good part, to Bloomberg Television, Tom Keen, and Surveillance, and, uh, and now with Barry Ritholtz. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast extras. We've been speaking with Bill Janeway. And in case I forget to say this later, thank you so much for, for doing this. This is fascinating stuff. I am just wholly entranced by the intersection of technology, finance, and economics, and that's a space you know really, really well. There's so many questions I did not get to, but before I even get to my favorite questions, let me let me go back through a few things that I, I blew through and might have missed. Uh, by the way, BEA Systems, did I get the numbers right? The initial investment from Warburg was $54 million, and then the distribution to limited partners was $6.5 billion in less than a decade, about six years later. Is that right? That's right, Barry. That, that's an astonishing number. I hope you were one of those limited partners, <laughs> right? I assume that's a, a fair statement. That uh, Do you ever look back and say, if only I put another hundred grand into that, it would have been worth bajillions? One of the things I've learned over time is good yeah. enough is good enough. There you go. That's the right. That's the right attitude. You know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda philosophy will just eat away. I know people who constantly kick themselves. My 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 wife, we met as partners in the firm where we both worked before I joined Warburg Pincus. She was an investment professional and her boss had a great saying because somebody would come to him and say, you know, you know, I knew we should have we should have recommended that stock. I knew we should have and he said, you know what? Put it in the retrospect fund. That's the one where nobody ever loses any money. That's right. And everything they pick. You know, I, I'm, I remember writing, getting my hands on the first iPod, yeah. literally one of the first iPod, and writing it up. And at the time, many, many splits ago, Apple was 15 with 13 cash. Yeah. You were risking $2. And the guys I knew bought it at 15, and they sold it at 20, and they were thrilled to death. Yeah. And I can't tell you how often you see a stock like that. But the reality is no one's going to hold it for a 37,000% run. Think about how many 80% drawdowns Apple has had yep. over that period. Most people have no choice but to get but to panic out. There's no other way. Well, this is what we were talking about. We were talking about bubbles. We talked about Minsky and the banking system bubbles. The stock market bubbles and and, and this is something that I think is is really important. Bubbles are ubiquitous. Bubbles happen everywhere. And you can think about them in two dimensions. One is, where is it taking place? Is it the banking system, highly leveraged, 
When it blows up, it blows up the economy. Mm -hmm. Or the stock market, very little leverage. When it blows up, the world doesn't come to an end. Difference between 2000 and 2008. Bingo. But the second dimension is, what's the object of speculation? Is it tulip bulbs? Is it those beach houses in the Nevada desert? Or is it some kind of technology that if it's deployed at scale, Mm -hmm. and if enough exploration, enough trial and error takes place, it really can change the world. It can create a new economy. So that's why the lecture I give today mostly is, is called Productive Bubbles, separating out that small number of this phenomenon, of this crazy, irrational speculation, which again and again for the last 200 years has been responsible for moving us from the Malthusian economy of misery right. through the railroad age, the electricity age, the automobile age, and now the internet age. The, you would think the Malthusians would give up the ghost, but they seem to be peren- perennially forecasting doom and gloom, even though the genius of, of human intellectual capital is this never-ending parade of, even though it began as wartime technology, you look at at innovations, it all goes back to how can we become a better fighting machine a thousand years ago? It's now trans- transposed itself and become something entirely different, which leads me to a really fundamental question I have to ask you. So you get your PhD at Cambridge in economics. How did that turn into a career in venture capitalism? That's not the typical route. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I studied, as I, I mentioned briefly, I studied under Keynes's direct students. Mm-hmm. I'm what they call, uh, you know, they have post-Keynesians and neo-Keynesians and new Keynesians. I'm a paleo-Keynesian. Okay. I'm an old Keynesian. I took to heart the core message of Keynes in the general theory and sure. his other writings, which was, first of all, decision-making under uncertainty. Nobody knows the future. And everybody knows that nobody knows the future. I would challenge a lot of you on that because I think a lot of people believe either they know the future or experts, economists, analysts have a good sense of the future. But you're singing my song. I believe no one has a clue what's going to happen. And they spend most of their day lying to themselves that they do. And then they wake up one morning and it's 2008 or it's 1929. That, that's when the uncertainty meme raises its head. When exactly. people start saying, well, things are very uncertain. No, no, we ju- you just realize temporarily that you don't understand what's, what's going to happen. But then take that one step further. Mm-hmm. Take that one step further. So I'm worried about the future. So I want to save more money. Okay. I want to save more money. And by the way, you're worried about the future too. And you save more money. And all of a sudden, everybody's saving more money. Paradox of thrift. Paradox of thrift. Coordination failure. Each person individually does what's rational. And the result is a systematic mess. Which, Which makes perfect sense. And also raises the role of government to, during periods of a collapse in private sector, business, household demand... The government should temporarily step in right. and and fulfill that, which but is even, essentially what the United States has done most crises, but didn't really do it this last crisis. At least it did some. It did more than Congress wanted to do. It could have done more as the president's advisors begged him to. 
But in any case, before we get there, before we get to the policy message, mm-hmm. there, there, there's another aspect. There's another aspect of this, why I left academic economics. Mm-hmm. Because the, the third piece is economics by 1970 had fundamentally come to be about how do we allocate resources efficiently? How do we eliminate waste in the system? Now, you need two assumptions for that to be the case. First, all resources have to be already fully employed. So you're just, it's a question of moving to the most productive application of labor, capital, natural resources. And second, coming back to where we began this whole discussion, you have to know what the return on that next investment is going to be in advance. Can you really do that? Well, I, in 1970, 1969, 70, there were jobs available in the best economics departments everywhere because, frankly, because of the federal government, because mm-hmm. of the response to Sputnik, the federal oh, investment sure. in higher education, huge increase in graduate schools. And I had a real heart to heart talk with myself. Right. Having been immersed in Keynes and uncertainty and ignorance and coordination failure, was I really going to be capable of teaching these naive and innocent young minds that we all know how to allocate resources efficiently, that the problem of economics is just about efficient allocation, that we can assume that all resources will always be fully employed? And I said, I can't do that. I said to myself, I can't do that. So how did you how did you morph from an academic economist to a pragmatic investor in technology? Well, it happened by way of a very unusual firm. Now, this is back in the old days of Wall Street when there were hundreds of private investment partnerships in Wall right. Street. They were all subsidized by being members of the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Back then... Brokerage commissions were fixed. Right. Monopoly profits were available. Sure. So you couldn't compete on price, but you competed for business. There were usually three ways to compete. First of all, we all went to school together. We all went to St. Grottlesex together. Second, the three Bs, booze, babes, and baseball tickets. That was literally how you would would attract Or brains. Mm -hmm. Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette. DLJ had created the idea of the research-based brokerage firm doing fundamental research. That that was a new innovation that hasn't always existed. Did not always exist. And it was it was it it grew up with the rise of institutional investors who would pay for research by directing brokerage commissions to the firms that provided smart guidance. So the firm I joined was one of those research firms which had a very distinctive style. It focused only on the science-based industries. Really? Chemistry, chemicals, Uh pharmaceuticals, electronics, and this new stuff called computing. But you come with an economics background. You don't have a science or uh, undergraduate. What was your background I did. I did not have a technical background, but pretty good reader. Mm -hmm. And... I learned, actually, as an economist, about this new computing stuff. Right. In 1973, we had the first oil crisis. The economy went into freeze, free fall. Sure. Simultaneously, inflation went up. Unemployment went up. That wasn't supposed to happen. 
the models, the first econometric models all broke down. And I went and searched for people who were trying to make sense of this. I found some guys at MIT mm-hmm. who were building simulation models of the economy, not purely statistical models, but what are now called agent-based models, where you could watch an artificial economy evolve. And I got it. It just hit me like a ton of bricks that computers were not just flexible typewriters or quick adding machines, that they were engines for exploring systems that were too complicated to model in simple mathematics. And I fell in love with computing. I then discovered, uh, by way of getting involved in understanding the first wave of artificial intelligence, I found my way out to Xerox Park in uh, Palo Alto, California. This is in the 70s? 1979. Mm -hmm. I spent uh, as many nights after dinner hanging out there, watching the future unfold, seeing things like um, mice for controlling right. a computer. Where, where a co- Steve Jobs got the tour of, uh, exactly of, of right. the Xerox Center. I was there the two graf- years before he was. So why didn't you start Apple? The graphical user interface, the mouse, there's a, uh, the, the network, the dot matrix and uh, inkjet printer. There's a run of things Absolutely. that came out of that Absolutely. that is, is just an astounding... Like AT and T Labs, but that uh, but that was how that was how I made the transition, mm-hmm. and and became immersed in learning the technologies, learning enough about the technologies to be able to talk to entrepreneurs in their own language, and to see the world in the course of the eighties, to see these 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 highly special technical styles of computing that were used by engineers and by academics begin to grow in scale and reliability. And that led to this sense by 1990 that these technologies could spill out of the laboratory and come into the big markets for commercial computing. That's how we got to BEA. How, how, did you, how long did you spend on the West Coast? How long were you uh, out there for? Well, I, I spent probably a week to 10 days a month for 35 years I hit three million miles on American by about 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, I, we 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 um, when I I should first say that the world of Wall Street was changing through all this. 1975, For fixed sure. brokerage commissions go away. Right, commissions start to decline. Fundamental research by the mid 1980s, you can see two paths forward. One. It becomes a commodity because you can't afford to pay the smart guys. Mm-hmm. They're going to the buy side. There are people like Ben Rosen, who is a mm-hmm. great computer analyst at Morgan Stanley, creates Seven Rosen, the venture capital firm. Mm-hmm. So there was a migration of the real talent. Uh, so either it becomes a commodity or you need another subsidy. Mm-hmm. If the subsidy is investment banking, it's not a commodity, it's prostitution. Okay. So we sold the firm in 1985 to a great British investment management firm called Robert Fleming. Our firm was called F. Eberstadt. We sold it to Robert Fleming in 85. I served out my contract as part of the deal. And in 1988, I had the great opportunity to, to join Warburg Pincus and to help build this technology investing at Warburg Pincus. You, you really created that at Warburg. They didn't have much of a technology Footprints, or am I overstating that? Well, they they we we first they were of all, dabbling. It no, like. it, that's not quite fair because, for example, Warburg Pincus was one of the founding investors in Gartner Group. 
mm-hmm. back Gideon Gardner, another one of those great sell-side investment research analysts who got the message and created one of the great advisory firms. I was going to say, that's not a technology innovation. That's really a, all right, someone's leaving to do a research independent company. Why not? It, we'll, we'll play it, with that. But it gave, you, it gave you a view of what was going on in technology. And there were some really smart people. But... The center of gravity of the firm was was not doing these relatively earlier stage risky technology investments. So but, you move them down downstream well, to a much or upstream to a much earlier stage. Well, Lionel Pincus and John Vogelstein were great entrepreneurs. They were pioneers of private equity, broadly defined from venture capital through growth equity investing. In 1986. They had raised the first billion-dollar fund that anybody had ever raised. Mm-hmm. Warburg Pincus was always large relative to the industry. Mm-hmm. And given that, they decided that we ought to explore investing in technology as Warburg Pincus, as well, a lead strategic investor rather than following other people. What was in the billion-dollar fund they had raised initially? What was that for? Was that it was for the the same breadth of investing, mm-hmm. investing in emerging growth companies, investing in turnarounds, investing very occasionally in buyouts, but so sort of private equity invest- type of uh- very broad. Warburg Pincus has always had a very broad expanse, investing contrarian to what the stock market thinks is the great thing to do. So today. when did the first pure technology? early, early stage funds come out of Warburg Pincus? Well, we always invest out of one fund. It's one fund. Mm -hmm. We invest across it. And that means that when markets change, as they did in 1998, 99, 2000, we could be realizing the investments in technology while putting new money into energy at $12 a barrel. Mm-hmm. So we could move against markets within one fund. We've, we've always invested from one big fund. The um, Actually, the first, the first real technology investment that we led, there were, there were several. The, the first really early stage was a company called Level One. Was a, I remember Level, level Three, one, I'm thinking, not yeah, Level One. Level One was not unrelated. It was uh, silicon optimized for communications, and particularly for digital communications, for DSL. Mm-hmm. Warburg Which was had, a big broadband step in between what we have today and that's right. and the twisted copper so, plain old telephone. When I got to Warburg Pincus, we'd made a small investment with some other investors. Um, and the first go-round, the first customer had been acquired by IBM and basically closed down. Mm-hmm. So we had a choice. We could either restart but if we, or just give up. Mm-hmm. But if we and, and, and the leadership of the company was an outstanding scientist named Bob Pepper, who had worked very closely at RCA Sarnoff Labs with my new partner, Henry Crissell, who was himself a great applied physicist and also a great investor. So we took a deep breath and we said, we're going to restart level one behind Bob Pepper, make a second effort and focus on making it possible for the plain old-fashioned copper wires to carry data at a high enough rate so that you can actually interact with a computer, not just, you know, push a button and wait have to see a cigarette, right. wait to see what happens. And so this is gun, still pretty early stage stuff. Yeah, this is not this was this was a restart of a startup. Mm-hmm. So it really was a startup. 
Um, but we had tremendous confidence in Bob Pepper. We helped bring up a board of, of really strong people. Um, some years later, Intel wound up acquiring the company for more than a billion dollars. Really? Let, yep. Let's talk a little bit about Intel because you mentioned that VCs really blossomed in 1980s. But my recollection of National Semiconductor and then Intel and that whole line of companies that starts in the like early 1960s, well, it, it, Sputnik and all that, is where Kleiner Perkins and some of the other big VCs a, eventually the, trace back to. Well, getting the timing, there's a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, history. So American Research and Development, AR&D, the great General George Dorio. Mm-hmm. starts AR&D in the late 1940s, takes him about five years to scrap together a few million dollars out of the Boston Trust industry, and makes a bunch of investments, none of which really worked very well, but put 70000 bucks behind an engineer named um, uh, 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 Ken, oh my God, I'm blanking. I was going to say Noyce? No, that... no, no, that's Bob Noyce's Intel. No, Digital Equipment Corporation. Okay, Dak, Ken. Right. Ken Oshman, no. We're going to look it up. All right. But fill it in. Um, that becomes $70,000 becomes hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Digital equipment is, the, in a way, the first truly great technology investment. Out of AR&D, uh, some of the youngsters got some backing from the Watson family, created Greylock Ventures. Uh-huh. This is still in the 60s. Right. And then, on the other hand, uh, an extraordinary entrepreneurial stockbroker, named Arthur Rock, follows the New York Giants to San Francisco uh-huh. in uh, the baseball Giants right. in uh, the end of the 50s. And he puts together the financing for Fairchild Semiconductor right. with Sherman Fairchild, the industrialist. That's why right. it was called that. Those were the geniuses, the, the treasonous six, I guess, treasonous oh, seven, right. who <laughs> left Shockley that was Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore. Right, right, and, right. And, uh, and Federico the- Fagine. Uh, and they started what, from Fairchild, which then begat Intel. And that's when Silicon Valley begins to be Silicon Valley. And, and by the way, the book, I don't remember the Intel book. I don't remember if it was, um, I'm trying to remember who wrote it. Or it, it, It's not the CEO of Intel, but it was someone who was... Well, absor- Andy Grove wrote... Wasn't Andy Grove, only okay. the paranoid survived. Right. But it's the history of right. Intel, which is really a discussion of the hint- right. early history of venture investing. I remember that was a fascinating read. But it was... It, it's important to remember, this was a craft. These were a, a tiny number of firms. Half a dozen. Tiny number of individuals. There were a bunch on the East Coast. Uh-huh. East Coast tended to be family offices like Venrock, right. the Rockefeller family, J.H. Whitney, the Whitney family. Um, and the West Coast tended to be these new partnerships. But even as late as 1970, the model, the business model, hadn't been established. So there was a guy called Ned Heiser in Chicago. Right. He started the firm. It was a corporation. It had some preferred stock, which was what was owned by the limited partners and had the preferred return. And the common stock, which was, in effect, the carried interest, was owned by the general partners. Mm-hmm. When Warburg Pincus was, went from putting deals together on a case-by-case basis, you know, with some entrepreneurs in one room and some rich family representatives in another, and created its first fund in 1971, 
uh, War, EMW Ventures was 40, $41 million. Lionel used to say it was all the money in the world. Mm -hmm. And it was set up as a corporation. And they took all the money down on day one. Despite that, it generated net to the investors 15% through the 1970s when the stock market was a disaster. Right. If they'd taken the money down step by step the way we all do today, it would have been 30%. Wow. So there was an experimentation, trial and error, right. going on about financial innovation. Venture capital was an institutional innovation, which by 1980 began to reach scale because of a regulatory change. What was that, what was that change? It was under the law that governed pension funds. The uh -huh. ERISA law, the Employment Retirement right. Investment Security Ultimately set Security up the Act. 401k and, and other right. things. Well, originally, when it was first established, there were very tight rules about what pension fund trustees could do with the money mm -hmm. that they were responsible for. They had to be very conservative. Right. The amendments to the regulations in 79 created a kind of safe harbor. You could take a portion of the pension fund and... Be, a let us say, a little more risk-seeking. Mm -hmm. And that enabled pension funds to start investing in venture capital. Before that, it had been wealthy families, mm -hmm. and it had been a few university endowments, but it was very limited capital. After 1980, the capital began to open up. And then, in 1983, the IPO market opened up. Between 73 and 83... There were just a couple of windows. One window, December 1980. Apple goes public. Genentech goes public. Mm -hmm. Then the great Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker sends rates to 20%. Right. IPOs stop. Right. It reopened in 83. We thought, hey, we, we thought it was a bubble. What did we know? Right. But well, it, from 82 to 87, it must have felt like it well, after... 15 years in the desert, a right. little bit of water looks That's like right. an ocean. It, exactly. Very well put, Barry. So, but, but there were real returns and a whole wave of new companies that began to go public and that validated the venture capital model, particularly around IT. Also around biotech. Now, biotech, biotech shares with IT the same dependence on long-term government investment in research. You can't you can't just do this bootstrap it. You right. can't just pull a bunch of things off right. the shelf. This is really complex, sophisticated, expensive research to create a company. Well, to create the science on which you a company, a company can, can exploit built. for yeah. a particular application. But there's one big difference. Mm -hmm. Fundamental difference between biotech and information technology. Mm -hmm. In biotech when you sit down and say, we're going to try to apply this molecule to cure that disease, if it works, if you get through the FDA, you know what the market is. You know it's big. Right. And one way to think about this for investors, early stage investors, is, you know, there are two states of the world. We get through the FDA, we make a gazillion dollars. We fail, we lose everything. Half a gazillion sounds pretty good. Right? Half a gazillion. Yeah. Of course. But the fact that the market risk is low, even though the technology risk is huge, is what distinguishes biotech from infotech. In information technology, the market risk is at least as big as the technology risk. Mm -hmm. Whether you're building the, the infrastructure or whether you're exploiting it with these new applications and solutions. How many dot-com 
babies went bust, how many of the unicorns today are going to wind up lying down and falling over after their mark to reality. Let, let's talk future. about the unicorns. And we, we mentioned how much money is out there sloshing around. Do we have a uh, technology bubble? We have a unicorn bubble. We meaning, have a unicorn bubble. Meaning the most desirable companies everybody wants to well, get here's, into? Here's what's really weird. This has not happened before. Mm -hmm. This is unique. Here you have major investment firms, you know, Fidelity, T. Rowe, right. who are paying- Public companies that normally own publicly traded equities. Right. And they have been paying valuations that are higher than the comparable valuations of already public web services companies. They're paying a up. premium. They're paying a premium. Now, in the old days, back, back when there was no IPO market in right. my prior life, we raised capital at my old firm at Eberstadt back in the late 70s for emerging growth companies that were already profitable, that were growing at 20, 30, 40 percent, and we, and, and we valued them at 30, 40 percent below the public companies because there was no liquidity. Today, that was my, my question is why, I was about to say, why it's strictly driven by the liquidity factor? Well, the premium, paying premium for illiquidity Mm -hmm. is the one thing you know is it won't last. You It won't last. You can, every bubble, and the unicorn bubble is a, is a bubble. Every bubble has a plausible story somewhere under the hood. Right. Well, the narrative always gets you to suspend your you know, even, rational self because the, the narrative is so compelling. Even the South Sea bubble, the South Sea company was going to take over all the trade to South America as the Spanish Empire collapsed. Mm -hmm. But this time the story is very plausible. Because with the internet matured as a medium for distributing and consuming services, mm -hmm. with zero cost and, and just incremental renting the cost of running it, the reach, the potential scale of these new companies appears to be limitless. So you have that appears the, to be limitless, but we know nothing really. Well, but is. You, see, you have these examples, you have these proof points. One of the jokes, one of the lines people use is, um, "It's motivated." The unicorn bubble is motivated motivated by FOMO, fear of missing out, right? In pursuing the next Faga, Facebook, is, Apple, Google, Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, the for for the time being. As long as these companies have access to what appears to be limitless capital, so they, 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 they're avoiding two marks to reality. There are two ways these, these valuations will get marked to reality. One is they do an IPO. Right. Once you're you know public, you get a price every day. And you know the joke is the IPO is the new down round. Right. You know, look at Square. I do not know that, Fox. but that's very funny. And, and the other is sooner or later positive cash flow is corporate happiness. Right. Sooner or later, if you have a sustainable business, you're going to be paying your bills based on what your customers give you, not what your investors give you. And therefore, you have an objective way to mark the valuation relative to earnings. And we're going to see which of these companies are able to monetize the usage that they're generating in order to generate positive cash flow. It doesn't have to be a lot. Amazon doesn't generate a lot of positive cash flow, 
But you and I know that Jeff Bezos has about 53 different levers. Right. If he wants to generate cash, he just tweaks, you know, tweaks uh, free shipping. Right. Another buck on Amazon Prime. He's got an infinite number of ways because he's got a real sustainable business. Uh, amazingly, his investors have allowed him to take 20 years to be profit free while building out what is now one of the most valuable disruptive businesses in the world. And he has been a he's been a genius at exploiting the opportunity to maximize growth subject to minimum positive cash flow. And I think it is because people appreciate that he can generate more cash flow. He can trade growth for cash flow right. any day he wants through a dozen different levers. So you, you mentioned Amazon. Not too long ago, Tim Cook was on 60 Minutes, and he mentioned they're not that far away from the billionth iPhone so sold. Stop and think about a billion of these yeah. at 500 bucks a piece. No wonder they're the biggest and wealthiest yeah. company. We could talk about Facebook. We could talk about Google. But I know I don't have you all day, so I want to get to some of my favorite questions sure. that I asked. And, and we, we skipped enough questions that we could do another hour. But let me, let me work through some of these because um, these are what really uh, hangs some meat on the bones. So you mentioned going to MIT and seeing what they were doing with economic modeling. And you've mentioned another number of people who have been influential, but I have to specifically ask, who were your mentors? Who were the people who really shaped your intellectual philosophy? I'd say there were three. First of all, there was the founder of the firm I joined soon after he died. His name was Ferdinand Eberstadt. He was probably the greatest unknown American of the middle of the 20th century. Really? In 1929, he wrote, 1928, he wrote the the young plan that was going to save the world from reparations and war debts, uh -huh. blown up by the depression, by by the crash of '29 and the depression. But during the war, he ran industrial mobilization for World War II on a dollar a year. In between, he started his own firm and created the first mutual fund after 1929. The first really? fund investing only in the science-based industries. Huh. That's why it was called Chemical Fund. After the war, he wrote the National Security Act for 1947, uh, which created the Defense Department. He was a public, private, financier, public servant. I knew him from when I was a boy. He was a great Princeton alumnus. Mm -hmm. He was one of the funders of the original Woodrow Wilson School. He taught me about this intersection between Wall Street and Washington, this dynamic play between private and public sector. In a positive way, not Very the current... Way lobbying, exactly tit-for-tat, right. sales exactly of, right. of votes, so exactly to Exactly how the collaboration between the two could create a great country. Second mentor was Ed Giles. Ed Giles gave me my shot at Eberstadt. He was one of the greatest investment analysts in history. He had three business cards, chemical analyst, director of research, and president. He only used the chemical analyst card. Really? He taught me about going deep really understanding the dynamics of the industry, whether it's chemicals or computing, in which you want to play a role in, in finding investments and defining investment opportunities. And then the third, the third was an extraordinary man named Fred Adler. Fred Adler in the 1980s, 1970s and 80s, was an iconic venture capitalist. He was a lawyer. He was a 
turnaround artist, mm -hmm. a crisis manager, and he was a venture capitalist. And Fred, uh, Fred had an unusual personality. Um, he, uh, he was very tough, very tough with people who worked for him. Um, he had funded one of the second of the great mini computer companies, Data General. He oh, built sure. a firm. He built a firm uh, called. Wait, ben Data Ed. General became a huge company. Absolutely, didn't it? and Fred put the money together, financing together for that. F Ten years later, fifteen years as after Arthur Rocket put the money together for Fairchild Semi, same kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, Fred taught me about how to understand the internal dynamics of a business. Follow the cash. Fred, you had these had these pillows made up that said corporate happiness is positive cash flow. And he used to throw them at his entrepreneurs in between yelling and screaming at him. I used to tell him that the only compliment he ever gave me was that he never offered me a job. Uh, because he <laughs> but but the guys who founded Axel, one of the great firms in the world, they were they, they worked for Fred back in the in the early nineteen eighties. So Fred and I collaborated. We created a number of companies together. One of them was uh, emerged as Life Technologies, the, the uh, company that provided the tools for all the people doing biotechnology. Huh. So that was my third mentor before I joined, before I joined Warburg Pincus. So, so these are mentors. What about investors who influenced your approach to investing? You mentioned Keynes as obviously a, a key influencer. I think a lot of people don't realize what a great investor he was. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes was, was a great investor. Um, I didn't know him personally. He died when I was three years so old. So I was going to say, what other investors well, influenced John Vogelstein. you? John Vogelstein was the founding uh, chief investment officer and president of Warburg Pincus. Uh, John was a great investor. He hired me. He gave me my shot at, at Warburg Pincus. And um, he had, uh, as I say, an extraordinary nose for markets, and he was he was one of the fundamental contrarians. Mm -hmm. And so he helped me understand that, you know, being patient, looking for where the world isn't looking, building new businesses, or there's a it, it actually ties very closely to Keynes. There's a wonderful passage in Keynes's general theory where he talks about how the value, the price of shares in the market. Uh, has an inevitable impact on investment activity in the real economy. He says it makes it makes no sense to start a new business if you can buy one on the stock exchange more cheaply than it would cost to start it. Keynes, this is in 1936. He 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 saw the LBO business in, in advance. And then on, on the other hand, he said it could it could be worthwhile to take an extravagant amount of money to invest in a startup like BEA. Right. If you can float it on the stock exchange for a profit. So this dynamic feedback between what's happening in the stock market and what's happening with real investment from John Maynard Keynes to John Vogelstein, in my experience, is a seamless web. Those were my mentors. How about books? Aside from your own book, and I could tell by your writing that you've read quite widely, what, what are some of your favorite books, whether they're about... Uh, investing or ven and venture capital or anything else? Well, of course, the general theory uh, changed my life. It's why I went to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. It remains an enormous uh, reservoir of insight and understanding about people making economic and financial decisions. Hyminsky's book, 
Uh, it's got a terrible title, Stabilizing an Unstable right. Economy. But boy, if, if, you, if you'd read it before 2008, and by the way, in Tim Geithner's memoir, my partner Tim Geithner, who's president at Warburg Pincus right. now, uh, he talks about how having been um, immersed in the, in the Asian financial crisis of the late 90s, he read Minsky. So he was prepared intellectually for 2008 in a way that most policymakers were not. Uh, so Minsky's work, tremendously important. The, um, the two books that I've read recently that I would recommend to everyone, uh, they're, not econo- they're not directly economics books. One is, uh, there's a book by a young historian called Jonathan Levy. It's called Freaks of Fortune. Freaks of Fortune. It came out last year, and it's about how... During the 19th century, in the United States, we evolved a whole array of new institutions for dealing with the risks and uncertainties of an industrializing economy, Mm -hmm. adopting British patterns of maritime insurance to insurance of uh, for railroads, mm-hmm. uh, and right through the creation of credit unions, sharing financial risk. It's a tremendous book. I really recommend it very strongly. And, and the second one? The second, the second is a book that I literally just finished reading yesterday. Uh-huh. It's called Liberty and Coercion. Liberty and, and Coercion. coercion. It's written by a historian named Gary Gerstel, G-E-R-S-T-L-E. He just moved from the United States to Cambridge, England, as the Paul Mellon Professor of American History. Mm -hmm. It's an extraordinary exploration of the dynamic, contradictory intersection between the federal government, whose powers were enumerated, listed in the Constitution— Mm-hmm. And the state governments, which inherited the more or less unlimited power of the British police power, the British mm-hmm. state, so that even while the federal government is limited by the by the, um, Constitution. the the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the states could tell you whether you could own another human being, right? Who you were allowed to marry, whether you could um, own a home. The power of the states was effectively limitless. Mm -hmm. And this conflict that, of course, exploded in the Civil War, then uh, after the Civil Rights Amendments, the states struck back and segregation was entirely a function of state law. Right. Then with with the New Deal and the Great Society, the 30 years of the exertion of federal authority over the states, and then now the counter thrust against sure. that under the Roberts Court. So this is a extra, the, very little attention has been paid to what goes on at state level in the U.S. But for citizens and non-citizens in America, what happens at the state level is at least as important at the federal. It's a great book. It's amazing when you step back and look at things through a longer time frame, how these phases and feints and counterfeints become so obvious that you don't see in the day-to-day operation. It's true for markets. It's true for history. If there's one thing that I feel that I've had an unfair advantage of because of the education I had, it's being able to 
bring to the immediate situation, whether it's a dot-com bubble in 2008 or whether it's the global financial crisis, uh, 2000 or the global financial crisis in 2008, it's a longer-term historical perspective that crosses over from economics to politics and back again. So, so let me digress from my questions and ask something I did not want to skip. So Cambridge, a couple of years ago, just celebrated its 800th year. I think it was... Uh, 1206, am I getting 1209. 1209. Um, so it's been around a couple of years. You're not only a member of the uh, co-chair of the 800th campaign for the University of Cambridge, but you funded an endowment for research in finance at Cambridge, as well as creating a um, UK-US connection for, for research on both sides of the Atlantic. Tell us what you want to accomplish with that that endowment and, and what the impact of that has been. Well, when I went to Cambridge on a Marshall Scholarship in 1965, just exactly 50 years ago, the uh, four years I was there just changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and getting reconnected with Cambridge as I did uh, in, the, in the 90s in particular, uh, at a time when a major change was going on in Britain. It had already been going on in the U.S. From the end of World War II through the 1980s into the 1990s, Cambridge and the other great British universities, Oxford, of course, were essentially funded by the government. They were essentially national institutions. Mm -hmm. But just as the state universities in America, in effect, over the course of 50 years, have been privatized, Right. So that state legislatures are responsible for less than 10 percent and declining. And probably most of that goes for the football coach's salary. (laughs) Most of that for the worst, to say the least. Um, So this idea of of the university, of a a national or a state university as a public good, was being dismantled. Mm -hmm. Cambridge, with this incredible history, you know, from Newton to Darwin to Crick and Watson to Keynes, the, the, you know, probably the source of more original thinking that changed the world over the last 500 years. Um, Cambridge was discovering that it too, like the American universities, was going to have to depend on private philanthropy to supplement, if not replace, the money that had been coming from the government. So I got involved as, as an American who knew something about philanthropy. After all, if you're a Princeton alumnus, you know about fundraising. <laughs> um, and and, and um, at the same time, internally, Cambridge was going through some internal reforms towards a greater degree of professionalism in the leadership, the academic leadership and the governance of the university. So on the one hand, uh, given this deep history of Keynes and and my perception, somewhat ahead of the time, I have to confess, that finance and economics are one discipline, that they what goes on in the stock market, what goes on in the real economy, goes on in the banking system, all of that needs to be brought together. That's why my wife and I initially funded the Cambridge Endowment for Research and Finance. But it was really joining forces with an extraordinary woman. Uh, Alison Richard had been provost of Yale. She became vice chancellor of Cambridge at the start of the new millennium. And we launched what um, I said to Alison, we should present this as this is the first fundraising campaign for Cambridge since Henry VIII knocked off the monasteries 
It will not be the last. And it isn't. We completed that campaign. We raised more than a billion pounds. Nobody had done that in Britain ever huh. before. We didn't only raise money, we raised consciousness. We raised consciousness among alumni, among leaders of other that, universities. That has to be some alumni association. You think about all the people who've come out of Cambridge, that's, right. that's quite an illustrious list. But they'd spent two, three generations where if you ask somebody about giving some money to Cambridge, the answer would be, hey, I pay my taxes. So building a culture of philanthropy is a generations-long process. Huh, that, and, that, that's amazing. Now Cambridge has launched its second uh, campaign, uh, two billion pounds, right? Double or nothing. They they got thirty billion pounds to catch up to Harvard and Yale and Stanford. They do. They do. They you do. would think they had an eight hundred year or well, three hundred year head start. They well, some be... of the endowments, the college endowments, go way way back. Did didn't Keynes actually manage some of the? Cambridge Keynes and... managed the money of King's College. Oh, that's right, his college. And uh, and and by the way, um, Cambridge now has a very well managed professional endowment fund, which I'm pleased to say over the last uh, year or two has done at least as well as Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Um, so the money that's given to Cambridge is is very uh, well taken care of. And the breadth of the uh, donations and the breadth of the professionalism of fundraising at Cambridge in the last 15 years has been tremendous. It is It, it really is a great achievement. Celebrating the emergence of Cambridge's own revival of post-2008 economics. My wife and I just made another major contribution, $25 million, for a professorship in financial economics and a fund for economics, which uh, will guarantee that the core research funding is perpetuated. It's an endowment, not spend down money. And, and that's and that's at Cambridge. That's at Cambridge. So so what do you say to Princeton when they come knocking? I I I've, I've also, first of all of course Princeton is the richest university in the world per is, capita. Is that true? Yes. I had no idea. And second, uh, we also celebrating my 50th reunion at Princeton have funded a program in financial economics at Princeton which I'm delighted to say has has taken root. So given all this education, let's let's talk about the students who are just graduating, the millennials, and soon there's going to be another generation behind them. What advice would you give to someone coming out of school today who's interested in economics and venture capital and finance? What, Because it's a different world today than when I started and certainly from when you started. What sort of advice would you give someone who wants to go into your field? Well, First of all, the world is very, very competitive. It's more competitive than it was. It's more open. There's more access. And that's, that's unquestionably a good thing. Um, I, uh, I, I speak a bit as a father, as a very proud father of my 26-year-old son who uh, went to Oxford as it happened. Uh, Oxford's a great bringing, university. Bringing shame to the family. On the contrary. <laughs> and, and Oxford has a wonderful program, uh, Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, PPE. And uh, our son was uh, was so born does, for So does PPA. University of Pennsylvania. It's so funny yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned that, right. that that's its own specific thing. But, but well, that, what advice would you give him and what advice would you give other recent graduates? The, the, I'd say one, one bit of advice is um, combining a really open mind, really reading and, and reading broadly with a willingness to get down to work. 
I mean, one of the one of the things that just has uh, thrilled my wife and me about our son is that he just loves to get dug into doing real work. Academics, yes, but actually real work out there, um, doing his apprenticeship. Um, so looking for opportunities to whatever the job may be, but learning how to, as Woody Allen said, showing up is half the battle, showing up on time, doing the job you're asked to do, and then looking for what more there is to be done that somebody has Over and above the call of duty. Absolutely. But also, as I say, reading and thinking about the context in which you're working, not just going down the line, because the way things have opened up so much, there's so many diverse possible opportunities. Um, But I do respect, I I do recognize that it is is so competitive today that... um, uh, there's no, there's no guaranteed road. Um, you know, Thomas Edison said 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. Mm-hmm. The perspiration really matters, but, but, but the informed mind can, can, can find opportunities for the inspiration too. And, and then my final question, and I'm going to change the date on this, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 50 years or so ago when you left school? Well, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think I learned. Um, I think I learned how important. Well, this is something I learned from my mentor Ed Giles. Ed, Ed used to say, "A winner is somebody who knows what to do when he's a loser." What's the backup plan? What's the hedge? What's the cash in the bank that you? The, the extra resource that you have that lets you survive when the world goes against you. There's a quote that's attributed to Keynes. Nobody can ever find it in any of his writings, that the market can remain uh, wrong longer than you right. can remain liquid, solvent. solvent. Yep. Um, so I the guess market I, can remain irrational far longer than yep. the average investor can remain solvent. That's right. And um, so I would say that it's, the, it, 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 it's thinking in advance about what you're going to do. What's plan B? What's plan C? What are you going to do when the world goes against you? When you plug it in, it doesn't light up. Um, How are you going to ride out the hard times? That's right. That's right. That's- Bill, Bill, this has been absolutely fascinating. I know I promised I'd get you out of here 15 minutes ago, but I just couldn't stop. We've been speaking with Bill Janeway. He is the author of Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, uh, as well as a managing partner at Warburg Pincus and a co-founder of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on all of our previous, on Apple iTunes, so you can see all of our previous conversations. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my recording engineer, Reggie, my producer, Charlie Vollmer, and my head of research, Michael Batnick. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.